Good morning, brothers and sisters. First of all, I want to tell you what a blessing it is for pastors to hear their congregation pray. And specifically, I want to talk to the children and the youth in this congregation who prayed just a moment ago. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes to a young man named Timothy. And he says, let no one despise you because you were young. But be an example to the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So to our children, to our youth, just an encouragement to you. Thank you for setting a great example for all of us in the prayers that you made publicly here today. And just an encouragement to keep doing that. And thank you for being a wonderful example. Friends, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Romans chapter 4. We're in verse 25. As you're opening, just one quick thank you. A big, a big thank you to all those who participated in the fall festival yesterday. Uh, big thank you to Melissa Hines, who was the director and organizer of that, to her hospitality team, Lisa Mykrantz, Ashley Lotva, and the many who helped make the food and serve the food. Uh, to all of the deacons who helped with setup and all of the volunteers who ran the stations, we're very thankful for you. But maybe most importantly, we want to thank those moms and dads who last night took their children into the bathroom and scrubbed their faces. Who did that? Any, uh, yeah, there you are. There you are. It took us three rounds at the Mom Powerhouse to get that paint off, but what a great time. What a great time uh, that was, friends. But friends, we're in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. If you're able, I invite you to stand as we read God's word. The Lord Jesus once said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In speaking of Jesus, the Bible says, Who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Friends, the grass will wither, the flowers, they'll fall. But the word of our God, it will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we come to you the only way we can, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, the life, the door. We come to you because you have made a way for sinful man to approach a holy God by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, and that we come to you by grace through faith. And Lord, today we pray that the message of the gospel would be very clear, that you would take your word and drive it into our hearts and our minds. Lord, if there's one here who doesn't know Christ, or maybe under the sound of my voice today, one who doesn't know Christ, Lord, we pray that you would work faith within their hearts, draw them to faith in Jesus Christ, regenerate them, Lord. May they be born again, that they might receive you by grace through faith. For believers, may we be reminded about the, the beauty of the gospel, this, this great story that, that you came to save us in our darkest hour. Open our ears, remove every distraction from this place. We lay this at your feet, King Jesus. We cast these cares upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Friends, please be seated. Well, friends, today is Reformation Sunday. You see, on October the 31st, 
1517, maybe you know the story, it was Martin Luther who nailed the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and it inaugurated what we call the Protestant Reformation. And on Tuesday, that'll be 506 years ago. You know, this whole doctrine that Luther was nailing on the church door there, it centered around justification. Justification being declared righteous by God, not through our works, but by grace through faith in what Christ has done for us. Friends, that was the central doctrine of the Reformation. You know, this was a doctrine that was clearly taught in the Bible by the Apostle Paul, but you know, it was somewhat lost in the Dark Ages. And in Martin Luther's day, it was lost on him. I don't you know if you, if you know Martin Luther's story, but at the first part of Martin Luther's life, did you know that he tried to get rid of his own sin by himself? Did you know that he tried to justify himself? Luther was an Augustinian monk in the Catholic Church, and he tried everything you could try to make himself right before God. He tried fasting. He tried praying. He tried confession. He tried so hard to justify himself before God, but every time he tried, he failed. He got to the point where he crawled upstairs just to make sure that he was humble enough before God and tried to take care of things by himself. But then Martin Luther started studying the Bible, specifically the book of Galatians. And today we're going to see he studied the book of Romans. And he found out that man is not justified by his works, by his own deeds, but he's justified by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans says it this way, the just shall live by faith. In fact, for Luther, this whole doctrine of justification became so important. He wrote these words. He said, it's the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It's that important. Well, that was 500 years ago. But did you know that 1,500 years before Luther, so 2,000 years ago, did you know that the Apostle Paul was writing to the Romans on this same important doctrine of justification? And he taught us justification by faith, and he taught us this based on the life of Jesus. See, I want to connect all the dots here. Paul is just not writing independently of who Jesus is. Paul is saying, here's what Jesus did. Now let's take that and apply it to our theology and let's learn why we're saved, not by our works, but we're saved by Christ's works and we're saved by grace through faith in what Christ did for us. So we remember the story of Jesus. Many of you know this story. That Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That he grew up and grew in thought and word and, 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 and deed. That Jesus performed miracles. That 
Jesus was perfect, that he did nothing wrong. That Jesus had his ministry for three years, and at the end of that, he was brought before Pontius Pilate, and though Pilate found no fault in him, Jesus was sent to be crucified. Then we learn that he died on that cross, he was buried in a tomb, but on the third day he rose again. And there might be some of you here today saying, look, Adam, I know this story. <laughs> I've been in church for a while, or I've been involved enough to know those, those details, Adam. So maybe if that's you today, you're wondering, Adam, why are you talking about this? Why is this so important? Yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross, but why did he die on the cross? Amen. Even if Christ was resurrected, why does that even matter? And maybe most importantly for you today, you're saying, what does any of this have to do with me? Well, friend, if that's you today, this one verse answers the questions. In this one short verse, the Apostle Paul teaches us these three points. If you have your bulletin, you can look on the back of your bulletin now and see a full outline of these Three points. Here's the first point. We'll put it on the screen. First of all, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Secondly, why is Jesus' resurrection important? And then thirdly, what does any of this have to do with me? Well, friends, let's look at that first point. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Another familiar story, maybe. It all started in the Garden of Eden. God made all things in the space of six days, and He made all things very good. And at the end of that sixth day, He made man. And He made man and woman in His image. He impressed His fingerprint upon us all. And there was a perfect relationship between man and God. There was not only communication, there was genuine relationship, person to person, Adam to Eve, and then Adam and Eve to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God gave them one rule. Do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden lest you die. And one day they were in the midst of the garden. They were around the tree, and the serpent was there, which we know was Satan. And Satan tempted them to eat of the fruit. Eve ate of the fruit. She gave it to Adam, and he ate of the fruit. And dear friend, they died spiritually. Physically, they were still alive, but ultimately they would die physically one day because of this fall. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. But God held Adam and Eve responsible for their sin. And on that day, they died spiritually. They were separated from God. Even though they were still physically alive, even though they once had a perfect relationship with God, that had changed they had fallen, and they were out of favor with God, completely distant from Him because of their sin. And the Bible teaches us that all of their posterity inherited their sin, that we're all responsible for Adam's sin. It's called original sin. That term is given to us by Augustine. Yet even if you have a problem with original sin, can't we all confess that we all fall short of the glory of God each and every day? Two verses to remember 
as you think through this. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is unrighteous, no, not even one. In the book of Romans, Paul makes it very clear, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, we are all fallen before a holy God. But you might be like Luther and say, hey, I'll take care of this situation. Sin, not that big of a deal. I can clean my life up. I can make it right. I'll just do more bad deeds than good, maybe you say. I'll fix this problem. Look at this verse, Jeremiah 2.22. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Anybody remember those old commercials for lava soap? Lava soap. It'll take all the grease off your hands if you're a mechanic. Lava soap. It will get rid of every stain. Lava soap. I remember an old shirt that I had at my house. I got it in 1996. It was my brother's first campaign shirt. There was only 25 of them made. And I would wear that shirt all the time. Uh, number one, because it's you know, my brother's campaign shirt. But most importantly, it was comfortable, right? <laughs> it was very comfortable. Anybody have one of those comfortable shirts? The problem with me is that if I wear a shirt that often, it gets stained. And Levi, I will tell you, it got stained all across through here. There was these yellow nasty stains. Who knows what I did. But I loved wearing that shirt, but there was a person in my house who didn't like me wearing that shirt. Her name is Deirdre. She's here today. And she was like, please don't wear that shirt. I'm like, well, just, just wash it. So she took it, and you know what she did? She put it in the washer. She didn't use lava soap, but she used Tide or Gain or something. And she'd wash it and wash it and wash it and wash it. And every time she got it out, guess what? The stains were still there. And I still wanted to wear it, right? Because it was comfortable. I liked being in my stained shirt. But friends, we tried. We tried everything we could to get those stains out. But no matter what we did, those stains stayed on the shirt. And friends, it's just like that verse, that Jeremiah 2.22 that said, Though we wash yourself with lye, though we use an abundance of soap, the stain of our guilt is still before the Lord. That teaches us, dear friends, we can't deal with our sin. We can try to clean our lives up. We can try to do more good than bad. We can try to go to church and attend this youth retreat or, or this women's study or this prayer breakfast on Friday and say, by doing this deed, we're going to clean ourselves up. But friends, we find that every time we put this in the wash and get it out, the stain of our guilt is still before the God Almighty. And there's nothing we can do to get that stain out of that shirt. Here's another illustration. Isaiah 64, 6, the Old Testament speaks again. It says, we all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
Friends, it's like you saying, you know, I know I'm messed up. I know that I have sin in my life, but I'm going to take this good thing and this good thing and this good thing. I'm going to take all my righteous deeds and I'm going to collect them. Okay, and I'm going to offer them to God and say, God, isn't this good enough? Didn't I do a good job on this and that? And God looks at all that we collected. And even our best efforts are like filthy rags. Even our best efforts are like polluted garments. Dr. Kelly used to say it this way, even my very best is tainted with myself. And the Bible says to us today that that filthy shirt, those polluted garments, they actually earn something. Here's what they earn. Romans 6.23a For the wages of sin is death. You remember your first job? We make money in our jobs. I can remember one of my children bringing home a paycheck and being very excited about their paycheck, their first job, that now there's actually money in the account. Because when we put in work, we earn wages, right? Wages is something that we normally say is positive, is good, right? We like earning our wages. When you get paid and you see your, your checking account or savings account go up, That's a good thing. But the Bible takes this whole idea of wages, and instead of making it a good thing, it flips it on its head and makes it a bad thing. Did you see it in the verse? The wages of sin is what? A a big sum of money in your checking account? The wages of sin is, say it with me, death. And that's not just talking about our physical death, just like Adam and Eve physically died. It's talking spiritual death, which means an eternal separation from God. Friends, what that means is, left to ourselves, we are guilty without any hope of saving ourselves. We have our stained shirt we have our polluted garments we have a payday of death everything i have told you up to this point is bad news but it's right here it's right here that i get to tell you the greatest news you could ever hear it's right here that i can tell you why jesus died on the cross because this verse says look back at look back at it in the text this verse says he was delivered up for our offenses all those stains on your shirt all that all those polluted garments in your life that payday of death that you have merited dear friend jesus was delivered up for all of these things on the cross You see, the Bible says that Jesus is fully God. He's fully and completely God. He's not partially God. He didn't just become God one day. He is fully and completely God, very God of very God, light of light, begotten by the Father. And Jesus, as God, stepped out of heaven 
and loved you and me so much that he came all the way down to this earth and became a man without ceasing to be God. Think about it. The hypostatic union of God and man only found in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, as we mentioned a moment ago, he lived a perfect life. Think about that. Think about being a human being and being absolutely perfect, never making a mistake, being tempted, yet not making a mistake. Here's what Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with their weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, here it is, yet without sin. If you ever think that God is so disconnected from me that he can't sympathize with me, read this verse. Jesus can totally sympathize with you because he was tempted just like you are, having flesh and blood, having, having the need to grieve and to cry, to hunger, to thirst. He fully identifies with us, yet he was able to do what we couldn't do. He was perfect, which means that he's a perfect sacrifice for us. You see, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the Bible says that Jesus loved you and he loved me so much that he died on the cross for our sins. Look at the verse one more time. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Not his trespasses. He was delivered for our trespasses. So friends, this teaches us that the death of Jesus had everything to do with you. It had everything to do with me. Friends, we said it in the call to worship. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. The picture of propitiation is this. God the Father has made us. We chose to sin against him. So God's wrath is aimed at the sinner. So in that situation of bad news, God sent a Savior. And the Savior lived a perfect life. And he died a substitutionary death on the cross. And when he did, all the wrath that was aimed at the sinner was turned and put on the Savior. And the Savior quenched the wrath of God. The Savior satisfied divine justice forever. That is the gospel, dear friends. It wasn't that the wrath of God just disappeared. It was that it was turned from the sinner to the Savior. And the Savior quenched the wrath of God. He satisfied divine justice once and for all. The Bible says he's a perfect sacrifice for us. Romans 5.8, we'll put it on the screen. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's an illustration that I learned from Dr. D. James Kennedy. He said, imagine that this, is, this hand represents you and me and that this hand represents God in heaven. And he said, every single one of us have a book, a record book. And inside this record book is a list of our entire lives. So in this book is listed all of our sins. And I know that if it was for me, if this was me, we'd have to get volumes of books, but play along if you would. 
But I want you to think about your book, okay? And maybe this is your life, and this is your book of, of sin, and this is God. What separates God and man? Our sin, right? Can we get to God on our own? We can't because of our sin. Some people say, no problem, I'll just turn my life around. <laughs> Still can't get to God. Somebody says, that's no problem, I'll just turn over a new leaf. Still can't get to God. So when we couldn't get to God, what did God do? God came to us. Jesus left heaven. And he came all the way down to where we are. And he lived a perfect life. So does he have one of these books? He doesn't. And he said, I love these people so much that I'm going to die on the cross for them. Because, Father, you said without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. So Jesus went to the cross, but was it the nails that held him there? No. It was our sin. Because when he died on the cross, this happened. Our sin was nailed to the cross. It was nailed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he suffered and died and endured the wrath of God for you and for me. And the Bible says that when he died, he was buried. But he rose again. And when he rose again, he defeated that sin. He rose again. He ascended up to be into heaven. And now, because of what Christ has done for us, what separates us and God? Nothing. Because of what Christ has done for us, dear friends, we can now have a relationship with God. But let's think about that resurrection, shall we? We have talked all about Jesus' death. Let's talk about that resurrection, this second point. You saw me do this illustration. You know the end of the story. But what about those people during those three days when Jesus was in the tomb? And maybe you want to think about those three days Jesus was in the tomb. Because people were asking, would death defeat Jesus? Were our trespasses too great for Jesus to overcome? Had sin won the battle? Oh, no. The scripture says, on the third day, he rose again. And that teaches us so many things, dear friends. It teaches us that death couldn't hold him. Because when death took on Jesus of Nazareth, it took on too much. It taught us that hell could not defeat him. Do you know that Jesus suffered the eternal consequences of hell in a finite period of time on the cross? He could do that because he's, he's the eternal son of God. But most importantly, what did we learn? <laughs> this sin couldn't conquer him. It could not conquer him. He died with our sins, but I'm telling you, he was raised without them. And he ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. You see, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees, it validates that death, hell, and sin have now not defeated the Christian. And they've not defeated Jesus. The scripture goes on to say something very profound here in this verse. Look back at the verse. It says, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
What does justification mean? It simply means declared righteous. Declared righteous. Let me tell you another story. We'll put this typewriter up on the screen. Okay, who remembers this? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. Who has no idea what that is? Raise your hand. Those same kids I talked to earlier, you need to learn this. Okay, the year was 1993. I was a junior in high school. I was the last group, I think, that learned how to type, not on a computer, but an old-fashioned typewriter. Who's with me? Who's with me, y'all? Okay. Now, I had the typewriter, and I think this one would qualify. Like, if you were typing, and uh, you, you typed a P, uh, but you meant to type the O, uh, you, so you type the P, then you had to backspace, and you got that piece of white film out, right? And you stuck it in there, and you type P again, and then you backspaced again, then, and then you typed an O. That's how we made edits in 1993 and before. Now you really don't know what I'm talking about. But this was my typing class. And if you know me, you know my math science guy. So I like symmetry. I like things to be nice and straight and even. And this typewriter provided a very straight left margin. Every time I would hit return, it would go back to the same spot and my left margin would be very straight and even. But my right margin, not so much. Okay? It wouldn't be nice and straight and even. It would be what editors call a, a ragged right. So some would end here, 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 here. But I was, I was bound and determined as the science math guy, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to make my, my right side as straight as my left side. And I tried, man. I tried really hard, you know, to hit return at the right time or put the dash in a word so that it could be straight and even. But you know what? Every time I tried, I failed. I failed. I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. No matter how hard I tried, I always had a ragged right. But then I met Microsoft Word. Do y'all remember that moment when you met Microsoft Word and you typed your entire document and you wanted your right as straight as your left? So you finished your document, you highlighted the whole thing, and you clicked justify. You clicked what? Justify. Why did you click justify? Because justify takes a ragged right and makes it nice and straight and even. Oh, dear friend, the text that we have today, Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was raised for your justification. So how does this apply to your life? Just a moment ago, we talked about that stained shirt that the stains wouldn't come out. We talked about those polluted garments. We talked about a ragged right that could never be made straight. We talked about a man, Martin Luther, who attempted to make his life right by fasting and praying and confession. We talked about a group of people who try to make their lives right by coming to church, going on a retreat, doing a good deed or that deed. But I will tell you, dear friends, 
everything that we do, at the end of that thing, we find the right is still ragged. The shirt is still stained. The garments are still polluted. But we still try over and over to justify ourselves. I tried to justify my ragged right in typing class. Luther tried to justify his ragged right with his works. Friends, what are you trying to justify your life with? Because the Bible says whatever you're doing, stop. Because it's not going to happen. But the good news for you and the good news for me is that Christ was raised for our justification. This means what Christ did for us on the cross, what He did in His resurrection, can now be applied to your life. Here's my favorite verse in the Bible. Are you ready? 2 Corinthians 5.21 The Bible says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me explain this verse to you, dear friends. It's what I call the great exchange. We'll put that picture on the screen. On one side, you have a sinner like me or like you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's unrighteousness, no, not one. We can't get rid of our sin. We try to wash it off, clean it off, can't do it. We're sinners. But Jesus is our Savior. And He's completely righteous. No sin, no imperfection, completely perfect. The Bible says that all these sins that you and I have merited are put on Jesus on the cross. That Jesus died for our sins. I've learned that since I was in Sunday school, or Sunday school as, as a child. Jesus died for our sins. But did you know the Bible says that the righteousness, not that we merited, the righteousness that Christ merited can be charged back to our lives. This is called justification by imputation. What does it mean to impute? It means to charge or to reckon. I'm going to get out my Wells Fargo debit card here. I'm going to hide the numbers here. from The The numbers are on the back now, so you don't have to worry about it. With this debit card, can I make a charge? I can. Yeah. Can I make a negative charge that goes against me? Yes. I could go out and grab some lunch at Tickle My Revs Barbecue here in a minute with Lad. And there would be a negative debit into my account, something that I would owe, right? I could, there could also be a, a positive charge, or, or what we call a credit. If you get a paycheck, maybe you take it to an ATM, you use your card in the ATM, you put your paycheck in, that's something positive to your account, right? So there can be positive and negative charges or positive and negative imputations. This is called double imputation. You see it right here. You see double imputation. The first is a negative imputation. All the bad stuff, all the sin, is charged to Jesus' account. Is Jesus a sinner? No. But was he declared to be a sinner? 
Yes. Then you see the positive imputation, the positive charge. His righteousness can be charged back to us. Are we righteous? No. But can we be declared righteous? Yes. Based upon Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. The first, Jesus takes the debit. And he gives us the credit for what he has done. And that's how we're justified in the sight of God. But do you know, dear friend, that you have to receive this gift? And the Bible says that we receive it by faith. Let me explain faith to us, dear friend. Faith explained. And this is where it has to do, friends, with you and me. This is our final point. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That whole great exchange picture, it doesn't just automatically happen. The Bible says we must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We must have faith. Well, let's talk about faith. What is it and what is it not? Let's use these two chairs to demonstrate that. We have a chair here. We have a chair here. Let me just sit in this chair. I have a question for all of you in the room. Do y'all see the other chair over there? Do you believe it exists? I believe it exists too. Do you believe that chair would hold me up if I sat in it? Be nice. I think it would believe, I think it would hold me up too. What is it about that chair that makes you think it would hold me up? Look, look at it. Does it have a sturdy metal frame? Yes. Does it have a back and a, and a seat? Yes. It, it, it looks solid. So we believe nice things about that chair, right? I have a question for you, though. Which chair am I putting my faith in right now? This chair or that chair? This chair. Why? Because this is the one I'm sitting in. So what you're telling me is that just because I believe that chair exists, that's not faith? It's not, is it? Did you know that the demons believe in God and they tremble? That's what James says. Believing in God's existence is not saving faith. But what if I believe nice things about God? What if I believe God is good and great? God is sovereign. Is that saving faith? No. It's like the chair. We believed it had a metal frame. It was sturdy. It was solid. We believe nice things about the chair, but that's not saving faith. Believing in nice things about God is not saving faith. What do I got to do? To express faith in that chair. I got to transfer my trust, don't I? From this chair to that chair. I got to say, I'm going to stop believing in what I do. And I'm going to come over here. And I'm going to embrace just this chair. I'm going to receive and rest upon this chair. Feet up. This chair's fully holding me. Never going to let me go out of it. 
okay, because I've received and rested on this chair. That's what faith is, dear friends, in God. Faith is not saying, oh, I believe God exists. Oh, I believe nice things about God. That's not faith. The demons believe in God. The demons know this stuff about God. Faith is saying, I'm turning away from myself and what I do and my merits, and I am receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Dear friends, on December the 6th, 1983, as a six-year-old child, I didn't know every illustration that I just shared with you today, but I knew this. I knew as a sinner, I knew I was going to hell, I knew what Jesus did for me, and I believed. <laughs> oh, dear friend, do you have saving faith in Jesus? Which chair are you sitting in? Are you sitting in that chair, or are you sitting in this chair? Well, friend, I got new, good news for you. If you walked in this door and you're still sitting in this chair, you don't have to stay there. You can believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved even today. Oh, dear friend, trust Jesus. One more short story. Back in 2011, there was an 18-year-old girl who was in a tragic car accident and died. And I had the honor of doing her funeral. Her extended family was already in town because it was the 4th of July. And there was about 50 people that came to her house. And they all had been mostly raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And they had been taught the same thing Luther was trying. I got to do, do, do to be saved. Do all these things. And I sat down with one of the family members. Her name was Donna. I went through Ephesians 2, 8, 9 just like I went through it with you. And here's what she said to me. She said, she said Pastor Adam, this sounds so simple. The gospel message you said, it, it sounds so simple. She goes, why is that? And I said, Donna, your whole life, you've been told that you have to do, do, do to be saved. But Jesus is telling you right now, he has done, done, done the work for you to be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And I'm telling you, it was like scales fell from her eyes. It's like the apostle Paul It's the first time she'd heard the gospel and she had been in the church for years. So dear friend, what can you take away from this text? The first question is this. Remember that ragged right. Remember that typewriter. My question is, are you trying to earn grace like Luther did? But do you find that your life is like a ragged right? Secondly, do you recognize your own stained shirt, your polluted garments? Thirdly, do you understand that the wages of your sin is death. But do you see what Jesus did with your record book? Do you see how he fixed this issue for you? And do you understand the power of his resurrection? Do you see the great exchange in your life? Where are your sins, dear friend? Are they still on you or are they on Christ, and finally, dear friend, have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, or are you still sitting in your own chair? Are you saying, I must do, 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 like Donna, or are you saying, Christ has done, done, done it for me? I got good news for you, dear friend. The gospel says, come all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Look at that verse one more time. In speaking of Jesus, the Bible says, he was delivered up for your transgressions. For your trespasses. But he was raised for your justification. My dear friend Rod Culbertson, who's a professor at RTS, Matt, I saw his post last night on Facebook. Here's what it said. He said, many people come to church, but many don't come to Christ. He said, I know, because I myself was once one of those people. If you're one of those people, I've got great news for you. The love of Jesus is aimed right at you. And if you want to be saved, you can be saved. Friends, after our service today, we're going to have several of our members of Redeemer up here up front that would love to speak with you about your salvation. If you would like to talk with one of our, our people concerning your salvation, please come up, grab one of these people. I'll be up here as well. We'd love to speak with you about coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. If you walked in here, friend, not saved, don't walk out that way. Come to Christ, friend, even today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for a patient and willing congregation giving up their time this morning to, to listen. Uh, and God, we thank you most of all for the gospel and for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray today that if one, there's one here who doesn't know Christ, that you would draw that one savingly to yourself today. May they freely come to know that you are Savior and Lord, that you will forgive their sin. You will give them eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.